0: Welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stammell-Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book, The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the fifth part of the reading and we're continuing chapter two. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash themariner and there for $5 a month, you can not only support this podcast, but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. The run to noon of the 24th was 210.9 miles sailed. Again I was to be disappointed. The calculated fix-to-fix run turned out at only 195 miles, a loss of 7.55%. It was disheartening. The conditions for speed had been excellent and more than 9 knots had been averaged during these periods of the day. The lowest speed average for any one period was 8.52 knots, and according to the hydrographic chart, Gypsy Moth had been in a favourable current throughout the three days, which should have given her an extra kick along. Of course, the fix-to-fix run for the two days, noon of the 22nd to noon of the 24th, at 406 miles, came to more than 200 miles per day, but conditions could hardly be better for making speed, and on my 4,000-mile run I would need to be able to clock up a considerably better daily surplus than 1.5%. I consoled myself with the thought that I was experimenting with different sail trims all the time, concentrating on trying to get the maximum speed and not taking much care over position fixing. I only observed the sun on two occasions to obtain two separate position lines, whereas during the actual speed run, I intended to get three separate position lines to ensure accuracy in the sun fixes. Gypsy Moth continued to sail fast. The instruments showed an average speed of over 9 knots for eight of the 12 periods in the log, and the lowest speed for the remaining four was 8.9 knots. It was rough going. At 0820 on the 25th, the log read, I suppose it is a rough line squall passing through, a series of squally gusts up to 40 knots, Gypsy Moth still goes out of control of the self-steering with the topsail up in winds over 30 knots when she has a good slap on the stern from a breaking wave. I was lying tense in my bunk at 6.30am, so tense in one fierce squall that I got cramp in my neck. I had to brace myself against the side of the bunk to avoid being chucked out. Gypsy Moth in the worst squall, heeled over 40 degrees on her side, and griped up 45 degrees towards the wind until she was pointing 60 degrees off the wind instead of 105. The whole boat was shaking due to sails and gear flogging and slatting and banging, waves crashing the hull, seas racing along the lee deck. I stuck out several of these squalls, but in the end there came one and I reckoned Gypsy Moth was not going to come out of it back to her normal heading and heel, so I got up. One has to move with great care to avoid being thrown across the cabin. I put oilskins on over my pyjamas and dropped the topsail. It was very impressive up there in the pitch dark with the sea rushing wildly past like a cataract, dizzying white in the pool of light round the boat from the spreader lights shining down. The topsail is pretty easy to hand and bag, except for the difficulty in standing on the steep deck. After that, I rigged a handy belly tackle to the tiller so that I could haul the tiller to windward from the shelter of the companion when the self steering was unable to control any longer. This is like I had in Gypsy Moth 4 and needed constantly. I think it is not only the topsail sheet pulling the stern round, but also the self steering skeg and rudder are nearly out of the water at a big angle of heel and so have greatly reduced power. Well, this is a good start to Christmas Day. I was lying thinking of boyhood Christmases, waking and emptying the pillowcase stocking by the dim light of a small oil lamp, also wondering how Sheila felt spending our first Christmas apart. The run to noon on the 25th was again good at 217 miles sailed. I confidently expected as much after the consistently high speeds clocked through the 24 hours, but when I calculated the fix-to-fix run, it was only 188 miles this did not seem possible and I measured the distance carefully on the chart between the two fixes the dividers made it 189 miles a drop of 13.3 percent in the distance sailed so although gypsy moth had sailed 861.4 miles in the four days the four point-to-point runs only totaled 778 miles which was 22 miles short of the 200 miles a day average I wanted The position was 36 degrees 10 minutes north, 19 degrees 0 minutes west, 205 miles west-northwest of Madeira. This really was disturbing, but I decided to give my worries a rest. After all, it was my Christmas lunchtime, so I started to open one of the bottles of champagne which Giles had given me. I had the wire off the cork when the sun peeped through the clouds. I had been trying all the morning to get a sunshot, so I stood the bottle on the swinging primus cooker, where it should not fall off with the heavy rolling, while I made a dash through the companion with the sextant. I was halfway out of the cabin when a report, like a cannon, made me wonder what had crashed. Of course, it was the champers blowing off the cork and firing it at the ceiling, and half of Giles' present had foamed away before I could reach it. Some strange things happen at sea which are difficult to explain or understand. In the middle of the night I wrote, Ever since noon yesterday there has been a succession of little cyclones with the wind going right around the compass, sometimes with a thunderstorm or with a heavy rain downpour. At 3.30am I awoke because of a continuous thumping, just as if someone in the boat was trying to rouse me. I was pretty fed up by this and resisted waking for a while, but it must have been a, a little man determined to wake me. When at last I gave in and came to my senses, I found that Gypsy Moth was tearing off for home due north at seven or eight knots. I don't know for how long. My previous entry was twelve and a half miles earlier. Since I was devoting the run from Plymouth to Bissau entirely to experimenting with the gear, sail trimming, rig and tactics, I ought to have been very grateful for the storm which blew up on the morning of the 27th. I learned a lot, but I realise now that I ought to have learned a lot more deduced a lot more from it. 24 hours later, four hours after midnight on the 28th, I was to record in the log that it had been a long, hard day and that several times I had thanked God that I had the strength and endurance to do what I did. The gale really started for Gypsy Moth at 3.15 in the morning when she went aback through a big and sudden wind shift which made it necessary to change from a broad reach on one tack to being close-hauled on the other. Of course, there was a lot of re-sheeting, hauling and handling of ropes and winch work in the cockpit. It was when I was up after this to use the bilge pump under the tiller at the after end of the cockpit that I saw a dark Mother Carey's chicken, a storm petrel, crouching in the corner. It must have been there throughout the hour when I had been working in the cockpit. This timid, wild-looking little fellow, if fellow it was, with his soft, sooty-coloured plumage, had chosen about the only spot in the cockpit where he would not have been crushed by my unseeing foot in the dark. The bilge had to stay unpumped because the jet of water would have landed right on him. At seven I was up on deck again to drop the slatting topsail but I found that Gypsy Moth had turned right around and was heading north so I tacked, dropped the topsail and came hard on the wind on the port tack. The true wind was now south east half-east, 25 and a half knots. This gave a relative or apparent wind of 30 knots, 45 degrees to port of the heading. A true wind is like a shower of rain which is falling vertically until you start walking or driving into it when it appears relatively or apparently to be coming from ahead. Another school went through at 11 o'clock and at noon I noted that the sea began pouring over the side of the cockpit as I was trying to eat some breakfast and write up the log at the chart table, but two hours later I had the mizzen down. It was a foul day, grey with heavy rain squalls and wind gusts of thirty-five knots. The poor little Mother Carey's chick was still aboard, but looking very sorry for himself. I wondered if I should put something there for him to clutch instead of the bare deck. Also, was it any use scattering some breadcrumbs? I could try. So I gave him a length of green braided rope to perch on, but he didn't seem to think much of that. Also, I scattered pieces of toast and crumbs, brown of course, only the best. But he was not taking to those while I was there, perhaps because even seabirds can get seasick, or at least feel it when on a boat. Later I found he had nestled on the sponge under the bilge pump in the cockpit. He looked less forlorn, almost as if it had made a difference, someone trying to be nice to him. I dropped the number one jib at 14.15. It took me a longish time to stow it in the special envelope bag made to wrap round the sail on the stem, so that the sail could be kept permanently hanged on, the top must stay. The object was to save bagging the sail, an exercise which can use up a lot of energy in a single-hander when it is a heavy, stiff sail and sees a washing over the stem in a high wind. The foredeck sail coat was one of Robert Clark's ideas, but I had been toying with it myself for a long time, and thoroughly approved of it in theory. In practice, it turned out to be only troublesome, and in the end damaging. It was troublesome working the sail into the envelope so that the cover flaps could be secured round it. This had to be done thoroughly so that neither wind nor water could get in and force the cover open. The damage came later. However, I logged at that time. I think it may be a good thing when I get to know it. It was very wet on deck in the lashing rain, but the sea felt warm as it splashed in my face. Rather than disturb the chick... I set to with the dinghy baler to scoop into a bucket the bilge water now running over the cabin floor with a horrid swishing noise, carrying it precariously through the boat to the cockpit. I was working my passage through the boat with my seventh bucketful when pandemonium broke out on deck. The mizzen staysail was flapping madly. Something had bust. The din and the shaking of the boat under my feet and my hands was terrific. My heart sank. I thought it was the end of the sail, when I had donned my hard-weather gear and harness and sallied forth, it was not as bad as I had feared. The shackle holding the clue of the sail to the end of the boom had gone, and the sail, being loose-footed, was then free to flap as wildly as it liked. It still had one shackle in the clue, Thimble, and was beating the boat with that. I could only see one small tear in the sail and a batten pocket starting to break away. I could in fact have left the bilge water to the pump because I found the chick had moved into the cabin, When I got below again after attending to the mizzen, he seemed quite happy. I hoped he would not occupy my bunk, but I saw him eyeing it. By 1710, the barometer had dropped 2.5 millibars in just over two hours. With a new shackle fitted to the mizzen staysail, and a handy billy with one end anchored at the mizzen mast, I was able to pull the foot of the mizzen out enough to join the clue to the end of the boom and then hoist the sail. At the end of it all, I was wet through again, but this time with sweat. I put the Mother Carrie's chicken on my hand in the cockpit and held it up facing into the wind in the hope that it would take off, but it only fluttered down to the cockpit sole. There was a lull in the wind, but the barometer was down another two millibars in three and a third hours, and the sky looked horrible at nightfall. I thought that Gypsy Moth was in the centre of a small depression, and that she would hit the other side of it soon. An hour after midnight the barometer was down another two millibars and on looking into the cockpit I was astonished to find the heading had swung from 240 degrees to 130 degrees. The wind had suddenly backed to east and increased to 30 knots again. When I went on deck to drop the mizzen I was surprised to find no chick in the cockpit. I searched thoroughly with a torch because I did not want to squash him. I hoped he would be all right and had flown away for I had been afraid he was going to die. The large light weather vane on the self-steering gear was taking an awful hiding so I decided I must change it for the smaller one. This proved a complicated and difficult job. It was a dark night and I could only attach the side facing away from the yacht by feel. Sometimes the stern flicked in the air and it was a strange experience to be high in the air looking down on a big sea passing under me 30 feet below. A few hours later at 3am according to the log I had to take down the staysail the last sail I then had set. Gypsy Moth had been crashing through the night at nine knots under it alone, out of control of the self-steering gear. I could hardly keep from being thrown out of my bunk. Gypsy Moth was fine, but there comes a limit to what anything will stand, and it looked as if more and worse was to follow. It seemed like, it was, what I would expect on the outskirts of a hurricane. The wind, pressed my clothes to my body, and my vision was limited because the peak of my cap was being blown hard against my nose. I saw great sheets of spray in the air, scattered like giant bucketfuls of water. The ordinary spray burst as if it were smoke from a cannon. The staysaw was like an enraged animal, and I could not work the hanks right down to the boom because the wind pressed so hard on the foot that, with the clue being secured to the other end of the pole, I could not overcome the wind which pressed the sail out into a taut curve, This was not important, except that the untidy stowage meant more windage, which in turn produced more movement. If only the boat could have stayed unmoving. The force of the blows from the waves would have been that much less. I was soon soaked. The wind blew the water up under my oilskin smock top, even though I had fastened it tightly round my waist. When I returned to the cockpit, I spent what seemed a long time trying to coax Gypsy Moth to head downwind under her bare poles, but an extra fierce blast of wind with a slewing wave would start her broaching too across the wind and the self-steering could not prevent it. Broadside on seemed to be the natural stance for her racing lines, and nothing less than a man at the helm would keep her headed elsewhere. I reckon the natural stance of a boat is the safest anyway, but in this case it was much less pleasant. By 0400 on the 28th, the barometer had risen a few millibars, and with it, the wind increased, registering up to 60 knots. At about 10, a big wave came aboard, and there was a great crashing of crockery and gear as Gypsy Moth was flung viciously onto her side. I felt lucky that I had been forced back into my bunk and not flung out of it. As Gypsy Moth righted herself, I clambered out, but I could not see any serious damage except for the spinnaker pole housed on the port side of the deck, which had been well and truly kiboshed by the waves. It had a big kink in it, which from below I reckoned to be about 150 degrees. There was a lot of water in the cabin, most of which I thought had come in under the companionway hatch cover. I only hoped that the fastenings of the after-peak hatches had held, and that the hasps of the bins under the cockpit seats in which I kept so much of my emergency deck gear had kept the lids closed down. The upper lifeline was sagging, apparently pulled down in one place, and I thought it must be where the end of the kinked pole had tangled with the foredeck net. The wind has eased, I logged. I have not noticed it much over fifty knots lately. More important, it has not got the same savage shriek. I have often noticed the difference between two winds of the same speed. One may have a powerful, urgent, impatient note. The other, of the same speed, will not. It is some extra quality which I have never heard or read about, Anyone might wonder at my lying in my bunk instead of being on deck soaked to the skin as I was after dropping the main staysail, but I must work up my log to deduce where Gypsy Moth has gotten to, and this is the only place in the yacht where I can do so at present. At 1900 hours, I logged that I had headed Gypsy Moth dead downwind a number of times by using tackles attached to the tiller, hoping that self steering would be able to control her from there, but each time it was a failure and watching in the cockpit it was easy to see why. A big wave would creep up on Gypsy Moth and break right under her counter, picking up the stern and carrying it round as easily as a dog carrying a bone, leaving it there so that Gypsy Moth was broadside to the wind and the self-steering was unable to get her back on course unaided. I thought of hoisting a reefed main staysail, but in the end voted against it because the wind was still up at 60 knots, so I hauled out my brand new storm jib from the forepeak, trying hard not to let any water into the open hatch. After reaving the topsail sheets through the snatch blocks, which I rigged to the big deck eyes amidships, the storm jib sheeted and set beautifully, and peace reigned. Gypsy moth ambled quietly down the moaning wind at six knots, rolling pretty drastically and with a big coma striking every few minutes. Those waves, I wrote in the log. I was on the foredeck when one broke there, and I marvelled at it. It was as if a giant snowplough were forcing up a great seething, boiling curve of surf on each side to the height of my eye level, about twelve feet up. My twenty-five foot spinnaker boom was a sorry sight. It had been on the deck in its usual stowage position, with the gooseneck snap hooked to a big deck eye in the angle between the side deck and the side of the doghouse. The other end of the boom lay in a curved chalk on the deck forward of the mast, Now it was broken like a cardboard cylinder, with two big kinks in a ten-foot length of it. If a wave could do that to a strong pole, I could not help wondering what would have happened to me if I had been standing there. Would my safety harness have survived, or would the hook have pulled out? Even small waves crossed the deck with a rush. When I had been sitting on the deck, completing the furling of the topsail, a wave caught me and swished me right over to the side of the boat where my legs were in the water under the bottom lifeline no harm was done, but it reminded me forcibly of the importance of always being very well attached to the boat. I presumed that the wave which had bent the spinnaker pole had also damaged the stem pulpit. All its stanchions had been pushed over to starboard, and the upper rail on the port side was now pressing against the forestay. This had done some good, because the stay had been slack, waiting for me to taunton it. Now the pulpit rail had done the job for me, I think the damage came from the big jib being still hanged on and enveloped in the sail coat. I ought to have realised that the pressure of a rogue wave on its bulk would be great enough to cause some damage. This was one important lesson which I learned, never to leave a sail hanged on if there was a chance of stormy weather. But I must have had a surprised and pained look on my face while handling the sail at the stem when my foot suddenly shot down over the side of the boat. The sail was not lying on the deck at all but was suspended outboard because of the shift of the pulpit. There was a lesson in that as well. But there was another, much more important lesson staring me in the face, and I failed, badly failed, to benefit from it. The spinnaker boom I wanted for my purposes ought to have stood up to that wave. It was not strong enough, and I should have taken steps at Bissau before the 4,000 mile speed run to have it strengthened, not just repaired even a bamboo pole fitted inside the alloy tube could have made a world of difference to my ambitions. Alas, there was one more tragedy to face in my tour of inspection. I saw a little black head sticking up through the duckboards covering the cockpit floor, its beak lifted to heaven as if appealing for help. My little mother Carey's chicken had not left during the night as I had hoped, but must have sought safety under the heavy mahogany framework of slats, I had searched the cockpit carefully for him, but never thought that the little bird could have squeezed into the tiny space under the boards. What it could not have known is that when the cockpit is flooded by a wave breaking a board, the duck boards float, and all the fathoms of ropes, sheet ends and gear lying there get swilled under the boards in a tangle. As the water then drains away through the drain holes, the boards settle down, sometimes out of place and overlapping at the joints. This must have happened, and the little chick was crushed when the board settled down. Or had it already happened, and was the little fellow already dead when I was looking for him? I felt responsible for his death, and it made me sad. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there, and stories from my life sailing, and we answer questions, and off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained that's the mariner podcast of course you can go to youtube and pick out the mariner there and at the moment we're on board with the 40 foot trimaran spirit sailing from antigua to bermuda and then on to new england and all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash the mariner Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.